Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism. And now your host, Patrick Donahoe. This is Patrick and you are listening to Financial Friday. This is actually going to be our first episode where we are focused specifically on financial strategy, ideas in, uh, in which you can make investment and put savings and capital. And I have a amazing guest for this first episode, and hopefully our longtime listeners should recognize his name because he's been on before. His name's Andrew Lenoy, and uh, Andrew and I have known each other for better part of uh, 10 years, and what an incredible guy. I can't wait for you guys to meet him and talk about what he's been doing for the last uh, several years in relation to a specific niche in real estate investing. So Andrew is the co-founder of Four Peaks Capital. And he also is a co-founder of Park Place Communities. And uh, Andrew, you're always up to something, man. And you're an incredible entrepreneur. But first off, welcome to the show. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Patrick. Always appreciate catching up. And thanks for having me on. So Andrew and I met a long time ago at a real estate investment conference. We met in person. We did some business together just previous to that. And Andrew, why don't you take just a second to talk about the business you were in then, and then the transition you made, which is definitely not like a lateral transition. It's kind of a a vertical leap type of transition. Yeah, I guess it's a bit unique. So I was in uh, Los Angeles for about 20 years and was working in the entertainment industry. And if anyone has seen the, the show Entourage on HBO, I basically worked at that company, the William Morris Agency, for about 16 years, worked out of Beverly Hills, represented comedians and touring artists and did that for about 16 years. And basically the story is when the the subprime crash happened, my folks who had been retired and living in Florida lost a pretty significant part of their retirement savings. Dad was a plumbing inspector. Mom was a nurse. They saved, quote unquote, did everything right and still took a pretty big hit. And so that was my cue to really a, pull my money out of the market were things I didn't really understand and then start exploring alternative assets. So that was around 2009 that I started kind of dipping my toe into real estate. You were involved in a, a few different uh, elements of real estate, your personal real estate investment, which you did quite a bit of, I know, early on. But then you decided to make a business out of it. And so you know, today, this is a business and a niche that you've shared with us on the Cashflow Wealth Summit. Uh, so for those listeners of the podcast who don't know about the Cashflow Wealth Summit, I assume that you're new, but we also are part of an event that's called the Cashflow Wealth Summit. It's an online virtual event that we do uh, once a year. And Andrew and his companies were sponsors this past year and presented on this specific niche, which is very intriguing because I've seen it in other companies and what they've tried to do in this specific niche of real estate. But I love the model that Andrew and uh, his partners have put together. But why don't you tell us, Andrew, a little bit about the discovery of your specific niche and the opportunity that you've realized and that what you guys have done to capitalize on it? Yeah. So I guess backing up a little bit, it's always good to know where you are in the market cycle. And so in 2009, I started buying single family houses in markets that were all outside of California, which made a lot of sense. Prices were low. The rents were great, good, stable markets. And I did that for about four years. And sometime around 2013, the prices started to really rise in the single family home space. And so at some point, the investments really weren't penciling out. 
So I started looking around at other asset classes. I looked at commercial, I looked at multifamily, and even back in 13 or 14, 2013 or 14, multifamily was, was felt like it started to get a little frothy and cap rates were decreasing and a lot of money being thrown around the space. And I had a friend who had been buying some mobile home communities in the Midwest. And so along with a few other different asset classes, took a really good look at that model and realized there was just a, a massive opportunity there specifically in manufactured housing, but it all falls under affordable housing. Now, one thing too, as you look at some of the adversity that you probably faced early on, right, where you got into this niche, there's a stereotype associated with that type of real estate. And I would say it probably parallels to what most people associate with any real estate investment, which is being a slumlord. But when you go to that type of market, right? It's kind of like, uh, people want to stay away. So how do you approach that stigma that existed? And then how have you figured out a way to actually use that as momentum to make this an incredible opportunity? So I guess the first thing is if you kind of take a step back and you really look at the crisis that we're having in the United States in terms of affordable housing. So you've got an annual median income right now of just over $31,000 in the United States, that's not household, that's just a per person, a wage earner. So if you're looking at take-home pay, someone's gonna see about $25,000 a year, just over a couple thousand dollars a month. And then if you kind of quarter that up, you're looking at six, or rather you're looking at somewhere around $600 a week for, or rather a month for a housing allowance. So you've got a median one bedroom, apartments in the US are somewhere around $1,200. You've got the median mortgage, somewhere around $1,000. And so 50% of wage earners are basically making this amount or less. And that was the big eye-opening moment. It's like, my goodness, there's just a huge demand for affordable housing. And so manufactured housing and mobile home parks, I think, is just simply the vehicle to really put a dent in this space. And, And you're right, it's not a very sexy asset class. But like going in and buying C-class apartment buildings and turning them around. You're taking an asset that was once flourishing in a community in good spirit. And over time, maybe it went from 90% to 50% occupancy and morale is out the window. And maybe there's people selling drugs in the community or whatever. And part of our whole purpose and drive in this space is to return the sense of community to these individuals and families. And while still offering an affordable place to live. And I want to hit on that in just a second, but I can't help but want to reemphasize just how most investors, at least, and I put myself in this category, right? Look at opportunity, right? Especially when it comes to real estate. And sometimes the perspective that we have going in is that this has to meet our standards, right? This has to meet this qualification in this neighborhood and this school system. And sometimes that creates some filters that prevent people from making good investments or at least seeing good opportunity. And looking at these communities, there is a big portion of the population that is in this category, this income level and asset level. And there's just been an incredible boom in a sense with regards to new construction, apartments, big booming technology that it's just expanded housing in a sense, but it's also pushed up prices, right? And pushed up prices, whether it's of Uh, single family homes or even apartments. And so it's been very difficult for a certain element of the population to adjust to that. And this is why I look at the opportunity you have, which is essentially existing mobile home parks and manufactured housing and what you've created as a system 
the opportunity is there, right? And there's ways in which you can be profitable with keeping rents or payments, housing expenses low. The profound thing that I think really was like lit me up when I talked to you and Mike about kind of your vision regarding the future is what you're doing to create community with these projects that you're taking on, these communities that you're taking on. So can you talk about maybe integrate maybe Mike's background and also your partner and then also this element of community that you are integrating into into the investment, right? So that it helps not just with the return on investment, but at the same time really preserves a lot of good community and not some of the things that could happen, whether it's uh, drug trafficking or other illegal activities, but in a sense, preventing that, which ultimately mitigates your risk. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess as a kind of a big picture, I guess, first of all, the median lot rent in the communities that we own is about $280. So we are absolutely sitting in affordable housing. So the challenge is, in this space is there's a lot of moving pieces and that's where my partner Mike Yella comes in and Mike's background is that he's owned and operated these communities since 2007, but he also built a plumbing and HVAC company from the ground up with about 110 employees in over 10 years and had a construction company and a cabinetry company and so really very well versed in operations and building teams and that side of the business. So he and I have very different skill sets, which is why we're really great partners. So back to the kind of the business model is, let's say that we find a community in Missouri and we go in and it's at 50% occupancy and there's 25 homes that need to be renovated and there's, there's issues in the communities and there's infrastructure problem and morale's gone. And so it's really taking a look at the big picture and we built out a construction company as part of the organization. I think we've got about 40 W-2 employees right now that travel in groups. And so they'll go in and they'll literally, I think we're renovating about 20 homes across the portfolio a month right now. And so they'll go in and we'll spend five or $10,000 on a home, which was basically could have been on a demo sheet. It was in such horrible condition and we'll everything from windows to appliances to subfloors to paint to carpet to, I mean, really like just renovate thoroughly that unit. And all of a sudden there's a really nice used manufactured home for someone to buy. Maybe that's a fifteen or $20,000 home. And then we also bring in new homes through, we're buying homes through Clayton Homes, which is a Berkshire company. And those are about $35,000, $45,000 price point. So if you have your resident hat on, you've got two different options for a home there. And, and essentially, in our model, we want as many of the residents as possible to be owners. We do do some rentals, but it's a small percentage because we want that pride of ownership. We want people to own their homes and have some skin in the game. So that in itself is a big part of the process. And you're literally taking an asset that's undervalued, that's a turnaround project, and you're going in and you're maybe the trees haven't been trimmed in 10 years, and you have to spend $70,000 in tree trimming, or whether it's sewer problems because a lot of these communities were built in the 50s and 60s or infrastructure, road issues. There's just so many things that's on more kind of a CapEx budget. And then you have slowly as you bring in new homes and you clean up the park and you take out the trash and you get rid of all the tenants that shouldn't be there. And then there's little things. We've been planned to build little gathering areas, whether it's a swing set and a barbecue where people, and depending the, the weather is nice, they can go and get together and do a barbecue once a month or once a week or whatever that is. 
But again, going back to a lot of these were just a lot of the previous owners just stopped putting money into these communities, which over 5, 10, 20 years really start to have a negative effect. So it's literally just trying to bring this back up to a really clean, safe community. Most of our parks will never have pools or clubhouses and things like that. That's just not the reality, but they can still be a really nice, safe place to live. And this is, I would say, and we're going to get into kind of the business side of things in just a second, but it's one of those opportunities where I think it's always been very local, right? Where you have the complexities, the moving parts, I would say, I'm not sure what the turnover is, right? But it's kind of a hands-on, in a sense, uh, project, right? Or, Or an investment. And so in your experience, have you seen just mostly just local ownership that they're not operators either. This is something they just had. And I remember some of the stories you've told me as far as like not even having rent rolls and you know, not really knowing what the occupancy rate history has been. And that provides, again, just a lot of opportunity, number one, right, to get a discounted asset, but number two, to really add operational efficiency to it through your team being able to operate in all states. And that right there makes it not just a short-term acquisition success, but a long-term success as well, right? Yeah. And a lot of the time, I mean, you kind of nailed it. You've got someone that inherited the community from their parent over time, or maybe they've owned it for years and they're getting older and maybe they're managing it from outside of that area. But the same processes, the same, everything that we have in in our communities in Missouri is the same as our communities in Tennessee and the same in Kansas. And so you've got to build out those operational efficiencies across the board. And most of the time, these, what we call them is kind of the, the mom and pop or the legacy owners is they probably didn't go to school to learn how to run a business and they've just been doing it whether they wanted to get into that business or not. So they're just kind of by, just going by what they think is the right thing to do. And a lot of the times that's 75% of the communities that we buy. All right, so we're going to take a little break here, but we're uh, talking to uh, to Andrew Lenoy, who's been a longtime friend and client, and uh, he's been really successful in a specific real estate investment niche. And we're going to learn next about how him and his partners operate the business. And as you guys have learned just in the podcast and past episodes, the investment and the idea is one thing, but then it's the operation and actually making it successful, which is uh, entirely different. And that usually is what either makes or breaks a long-term opportunity. So stick with us through uh, this short break and we'll be back with Andrew Lenoy. Did you know the wealthiest investors allocate the majority of their portfolio to passive commercial real estate investments? Imagine investing in lucrative real estate opportunities, all while generating income. Our mission at Four Peaks Capital Partners is to identify underperforming assets and employ our professional management team to provide income opportunities to our investors. Contact us as we can provide above average returns consistently year after year. Go to CashflowInvestments.com. That's CashflowInvestments.com. Okay, we're back. And Andrew, I've had the fortunate opportunity to know you and see your journey. And then uh, I think it was about a little less than a year ago where I came out to Arizona. It's just a short flight from Salt Lake, just an hour and 50 minutes, hour and 20 minutes. And got to visit with you and Mike and really see your vision and then get an idea of just kind of how you guys were operating. And it was fascinating to me. And, And I think that the, the idea of putting a team together, it's not the easiest thing to do and getting people to work together with a common purpose and finding people. Uh, but you guys have made that trek and uh, you have put together just a, an incredible team. So would you you'd be willing to maybe talk a little bit more about your business and how you operate, the different people you've found and their backgrounds and you know maybe a little bit why you chose them 
and just the importance of the overall structure of your company as it relates to the success of the investments that you're putting together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really goes back to having a world-class team in, in this space. I think anything in affordable housing in general is going to be a challenge to operate. So as long as you, you go into that, knowing that trying to outsource a lot of things or subcontract certain things, you're just not going to work. I mean, we're currently operating in, we're based in Phoenix, we're operating in 12 states right now, somewhere around 100 employees across the board, including all managers and maintenance that all be at the community. So we have different companies. We have a construction company, which I mentioned, which I think we're at 40 some odd folks. So those guys are out in the field traveling. They're superintendents, supervisors, carpenters, laborers, and they're literally their sole focus is turning units, renovating units. So they've got someone on site that's overseeing them. They know the process. They know specifically how to renovate these homes. They're different than stick-built single families. So we have those crews that travel around. They're managed by someone that's in our home office. And obviously that company has very specific targets. We have X amount of communities that are on the list to renovate. We have multiple crews that are moving. We have, you know, there's all the auxiliary stuff like being licensed in those states and all those moving pieces. But once a home is renovated, basically once all the punch list items are done, then it goes into the marketing team's hands where they then market that home for a sale. So that's a different model than if you have multifamily and you're renovating apartments and then renting them. I mean, these are single units that are then being sold the resident has to come in, they have to put down five to 10%. So typically that's $15,000, $20,000 on a used home, or maybe it's thirty-five to forty-five dollars on a new home. In our space and affordable housing in general, that's one of the big challenges is the down payments from the residents. And that goes back to just our resident base is that most people aren't sitting on $5,000 in cash. And that's just the reality. So that's a big problem that we're in the middle trying to solve But anyways, once we find a resident, they qualify. All of the residents have financing. There's not a single resident who comes in and buys something with $20,000 in cash. They're all financed. Then they move in and they're a part of the community. And then there's the management side, which is ongoing in its collections. And the manager is always typically responsible for showing the units. So I don't know if that answered your question, but really a lot of moving pieces in this model. Maybe talk about, because early on when I'd known you through this entire process and been able to have uh, sort of a, a backseat view of what you've been uh, successful at, but you were doing a lot of a lot of the discovery and a lot of the, the stuff yourself for a while. And that's important, especially when you're starting up a company. But then obviously, you can't do that forever. It's trying to run at a sprint pace uh, for a marathon length. It's just not going to, well, unless you're a professional marathon runner, I guess. But anyway, the point is, like you saw how everything worked, but realized that you couldn't do everything, especially at scale. And so maybe talk about joining up with Mike and then understanding that he has the experience of working with a lot of different people who all had different roles and coming together for a, an, you know, an, an end purpose, right? So maybe talk about just how you put together your team, right? Based on all the different elements of the deal, where you found people, what are some of their backgrounds and so forth? So several years ago, we were running as a virtual company and we had people in different states. So for instance, our recruiter and HR person was in Portland, Oregon. We had an integrations person in Denver. I mean, people were all over, spread out all over the country. And 
one of the first things that when Mike and I started to work together several years ago is we needed to pull everything in and we really needed a brick and mortar office in this space. So that was a big initiative in 2018. So about maybe about eight months ago, we opened up an office here in Phoenix and we're in Gilbert, which is a little suburb of Phoenix. And so we started with maybe, I don't know, six or seven people in the office some of the folks that had been working with us for years actually started to move to Phoenix, which was great instead of rehiring for that role. And again, going back to Mike and what his what some of his strengths are is really everyone stay in their lanes and processes and that part of running an operations team. So that really fell on his desk. And over the course of the last, I think we outgrew that offices the last uh, eight months, maybe two or three times and just moved into a new space. And I think we're at somewhere around 22 full-time people right now. So just that, that's kind of the end result. And along the way, you're always wearing, I think the goal as a business owner and an entrepreneur and being someone who's raising capital as well as being an operator is you want to go from wearing 20 hats to ideally wearing only a couple hats. And sometimes that takes years and years to do. And there's certainly plenty of things that you can hire for, but bringing in Mike as my partner was huge because he's experienced in that. And so we had a very much a divide and conquer mentality of here's what you're going to be focusing on. We've got a great partnership and relationship and I trust him. So he's working on X, I'm working on Y. And certainly we're, we have initiatives together and high level things we're working on, but it's really, it was a divide and conquer to get this operations and all the team built. Now, maybe one of the final things we can talk about is you've also had a seat with just being able to observe and be around groups of other entrepreneurs and investors that are putting together deals, whether it's uh, apartment deals or single family blocks or tracks. You've seen just as well as I, we know some of the, some, uh, the same ones of, of big failures, but also really big successes. So maybe talk about those. I know you have a very close relationship with Ken McElroy and then others that have done very well in the real estate investment by putting investments together and being successful with them. Maybe talk about just how, who are your you know, primary influences and how has your century network helped you to be a better business owner and also a better investor? Well, I guess the, the first thing is I've just probably the past 10 years, I've read or listened to more audiobooks and that side than I had ever before. So I mean, I'm constantly looking at different groups to join, looking at different people to get around. That's interesting, like Ken McElroy and I are pretty good friends and he's done something similar. He's obviously different league and he's doing multifamily, but he has an operations team. He has a construction company. So just being able to kind of bend his ear on problems that you're having or anything like that in kind of a mentorship role has been just unbelievable. And a lot of people that we know have also raised a lot of money and they maybe they don't have the team in place or they're not an operator, but they're raising money and using third parties or passing it off to someone. That's a, a whole different animal in itself. And then like Ryan Moran, as, as an example, we've spent some time around Ryan and his group and in that e-commerce business and challenges that people have in that space. So you, know, you get around different people who are all entrepreneurs and going through different growth patterns and everyone has issues that they're trying to solve. And a lot of time there's some commonalities between that, even if someone is selling a physical product on Amazon versus running a manufactured housing company, you can definitely pull some commonalities out from it. Yeah. I mean, business is business and there's business fundamentals. It doesn't matter what your product, or your service is. And 
that's where, as I've discussed with you even before we started, and really where I'm trying to focus financial strategy and financial opportunity, investment opportunity, right, is that ideas definitely have merit. And I'm not discounting ideas. And in this case, you know, it's a niche, a niche real estate uh, or niche uh, market in the, in the real estate industry. But at the same time, there's been ideas that have been really good, but poorly executed. And ultimately, it's failure. And there's been businesses that have a, a lackluster product, right, or outcome or service. But yet, because of how well the business is run, business is successful. And that's where I wanted to go down this line of questioning is because as I've looked at investment, especially in real estate investment, what's more commonly referred to alternative investment, is that you have really cool, innovative ideas. At the same time, what I've seen as uh, success and failure has nothing to do with the idea and has everything to do with the underlying business. And so that's where we kind of took this direction as far as how the business operates, who are the operators, you know, who's on the team, because I think that is paramount to the overall success of the business, which in this case is an investment. And I know you and I've had multiple discussions around that, Andrew, and you know, we've, I think we're on kind of the same wavelength to an extent. Yeah. And a lot of it's, it's just like anything else. It's trial and error. I mean, you try one thing and it doesn't work out. So you have to make a shift. I mean, we spent a lot of time in 2017 and 2018, literally ripping apart different systems and processes and hey, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? Well, we have to do that in-house. And does it maybe it costs a little more upfront, but saves money down the line or, or whatever it is. But I think one of our big takeaways is in this space or really to be, to be a successful operator, especially if you're in affordable housing, you need a team. It's not something that you can just go hit an easy button and subcontract out to. And then there's everything else along with having a growing company is culture and the things that you've spent so much time and energy on it. There's just a lot of layers and complexity to it. Well, Andrew, this has been awesome. And I'm so proud of your success and what you've accomplished. And you know, I can't wait to see what you guys do in 2019. But why don't we take just the last uh, minute or so for you to talk to the audience about how to get in contact with you? What are some of the types of investments opportunities that you have? Who's the right investor for it? And then we can end there. Sure, that's great. So web, the website is fourpeakspartners.com. And if anyone wants to set up a time to, to talk with someone on our team, you can send a, an email to investors at fourpeakspartners.com and just put free consultation in the subject. And it's fourpeakspartners.com. Yeah, and I guess that's it. We had a pretty big acquisition year this year and we plan on having another strong acquisition year in 2019. We're fortunate enough that we're still finding assets in decent cap rates. So there's lots of opportunity and continue to be on a big acquisition trend as long as the deals pencil out. That's awesome, man. Well, what we'll do is we'll make sure that all of these links and uh, ways to get in communication with you guys are on the show notes. So if you're listening and driving and I uh, can't remember the how to spell peaks or can't remember the URL or what to say in the subject line, just go ahead and go to dwellstandard.com and we'll find all the links, uh, final links there for Andrew and his companies. Uh, but Andrew, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support of uh, the show, our friendship, and I uh, wish you the best in 2019. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate all you do. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, 
legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,